Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. I like good artwork as much as the next guy. I really do. I appreciate when somebody puts in the time, the effort, the energy to create something that uh, is born from their imagination. It's why I, I didn't mind when I saw Damian Lillard over the weekend post to Instagram that wonderful piece of art that had himself and Kevin Durant in what looked like gothic uniforms. I mean, is that the best way to describe it? It was a little bit of goth going on in that in that creation, but the bottom line being that it's Durant in a Blazers uniform. And you got a Blazers star player who is putting that forth for the public to consume. I asked people to caption it, and the vast majority of people on my Instagram and Twitter and Facebook had fun with it. Very few people took it seriously. But I want to start today's show by addressing it seriously. What would it take to get Kevin Durant to the Trailblazers? How much of your future... Would you be willing to mortgage if you are Portland? Or is this just a case of Damian Lillard trying to signal to the fan base that he wants the organization to take a big swing? And when it doesn't, then that gives Lillard the right to raise his hand and say, you know what, this isn't a place I want to be after all. What did you make of it? How did it strike you? How much of your future as an NBA organization would you be willing to give up? 503-417-7575. Is it a good fit for Kevin Durant? Is it the right player to play alongside Damian Lillard? And would Portland immediately elevate as a contender? Certainly would be interesting in the Western Conference. I want to hear from you. I want to talk about it. Tell me how it struck you over the weekend. Did it get you excited? Did you kind of roll your eyes? Did it bring back memories of the 07 NBA draft where you went, oh, should have honked twice instead of honking once. I had some people do that when I asked them to caption it. It's that time of summer as we creep towards uh, July and the start of NBA free agency. We'll talk about that on today's show. I want to talk a ton of college football as well because it is never too early to talk college football. We'll deal with the LIV Golf Invitational. Some people are calling it the Live Golf Invitational. I happen to uh, use Roman numerals as they were uh, supposed to be used, so I'll call it L-I-V. Uh, I don't call it, uh, you know, the Excel Super Bowl. I call it Super Bowl XL. So you tell me what you think of Kevin Durant in a Blazers uniform. How did it strike you? I actually liked it because I thought it's creative, it was interesting, it's different, it certainly would be disruptive. And I think if you are really buying into the win-now mentality, win-now, mortgage your future, win now. You would do everything in your power if you're Joe Cronin, the general manager of the Blazers, to get Kevin Durant in uniform. But I sort of think, uh, I've been here long enough, I guess, to believe and to know that 
Portland isn't at the top of the list for any NBA free agent. I think it's going to take a lot of problems in Brooklyn, and it's going to take a lot of other things having to unravel. And I think if Kevin Durant someday, somehow, someway ends up in a Blazers uniform, hopefully sooner rather than later, if that ever does happen, I think it's going to be after having several misfires in other markets. But I want to hear from you. Does it move the needle for you? If so, what would you be willing to give up? What would you be willing to do if you are the Blazers to make this come to fruition? 503-417-7575. we got a great Monday show for you. We'll have some big guests. Uh, I'm in contact with LaMichael James. I am in contact with J.J. Burden. I'm trying to sort out if they're coming on today's show, coming on tomorrow's show, but uh, you never know where this show may go. One thing that I do hope we get on today's show is I hope we get Angry Judah. We got Angry Judah on Friday, and he was back from his vacation, and he was all fired up. Judah, I want more of that Angry Judah. And I heard from listeners on Friday who said, can we have more of that guy, please? Well, that's great because I'm pissed today, so I'm, Good. Uh, I'm ready to rock. What was different on Friday? What was it that was you know was going on that I, I you know because you were it, in yeah. a different mood? Normally you were different. I'm pretty docile. Normally, I'm pretty agreeable. And Friday, I just uh, you know. I was back to work, and normally being back to work on a Friday is a good thing, right? It's like you're back to work, but it's not a Monday. You're going you're yeah. to work one day and head into the weekend. Sure. So, frankly, I think that helped. I was like, oh, man, I'm just going to cut it loose. Then it was also smack-off day uh, on the Jim Rome ah. show, and I love I love the smack-off. I love Romy, obviously, here on uh, the 750 Game Portland flagship. So that kind of got me in that mindset as well. And then, frankly, J.C., I just uh, I felt pretty strongly about the uh, the takes I was given. Good, both on Sark and the uh, the What's Your Peeve segment. So uh, I love that, and, and uh, I'm trying to to find that side of me more often. So I'm I'm glad that resonated with people. Uh, let it rip on today's show. Why don't you just you know you just had two days off anyway <laughs> yeah, exactly. over the weekend. Let's let's find that. Uh, it, look, Blazer fans got excited over the weekend. Is you know Damian Lillard posted the Kevin Durant uh, little photo of he and Durant little Photoshop or whatever you're gonna call it. I kind of like the uniforms. I kind of like the look of the pic, the uh, the artwork. It was very. Uh, I, I use the term gothic, but it just it looked a little edgy. had a little had a little darkness to it. Like the uniforms were, you know, uh, you know, just the hue of the uniforms. Even it wasn't that bright bright red. It was it had kind of a darker, darker cherry red to it. And and look, uh, so I liked it from that. But it 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 circulated immediately among fans, and I I tweeted it out, and it caused a bunch of you know a bunch of people to speculate that. Are these two guys trying to get together? Lillard put it on his Instagram story. It's since gone away. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic tweeted it, uh, and uh, I could see Dame going, Nurk, come on, man. That was you Put on your story so it just disappears, man. Now it's out there, and it's out there forever. But it, on Damian Lillard's Instagram story, you know, how, what was your reaction, Judah? And I want to hear from listeners. What was your reaction? What would you give up? Is this just Damian Lillard posturing going, look, we need to swing bigger. We need to go better than the seventh pick in the draft. We need to go bigger than Jeremy Grant. Like, it's time to put a superstar player alongside Damian Lillard. Is that Lillard's cry for help? Or is there something to this? You tell me what your reaction was to it and how it strikes you at 503-417-7575. I want to hear from you on this beautiful day in this great part of the country that we live. Judah, how did it strike you when you saw it? Well, I was shocked. And then I, you know, Dame's hit a, a lot of big shots in Portland in his career, but this would be the biggest shot he's ever hit. This would be the finest moment of Damian Lillard's career outside of winning a championship itself. 
if his shot that he shoots at Kevin Durant lands and goes down and we bring Easy Money Sniper to the Rip City? Are you kidding me? Anybody that's shooting this down or says that this is not a good idea or mortgaging the future is not a good idea, they need to shut up. Let this play out. Let this happen. Anything you can do to land Kevin Durant, you do. To me, it's a no-brainer. It's a full stop. We had a similar conversation about when James Harden was available you know, around this time last year, and most Blazer fans were saying, let's bring James here, despite his questionable character and his work ethic, and he lets himself go a little bit and what have you, but we wanted to win. So if you care about winning, if you care, if you legitimately care about winning a title, which I will say, I question about some Blazer fans. Some Blazer fans to me would rather have good guys to root for than actually winning the thing. If you want to actually see your team win the thing for the first time since 77, you do whatever the heck you can to land Kevin Durant. That's my take. I want to hear from people, and I want to know whether or not you think this is Damian Lillard stirring it up, Lillard recruiting Kevin Durant, or is Lillard putting some pressure on the Blazers' front office after draft day in which they keep the pick, they draft a a player who hadn't even played in a college game? I, I think there's several ways to read this, and I think we're in an era where players are being more cryptic than ever. Let's go to the phone lines. D is in Portland, going to start us off. D, welcome to the show. Hey, John Gavala, thank you for having me on your show. I uh, hope you're having an amazing day today. Thank you. Um, first thing first, man, you do anything to try to get Kevin Durant. Listen, guys, we don't watch, they don't play the games just to get to the playoffs and say, oh, yay, we got to the playoffs, then we got our ass kicked. Uh, no, you go there to win the damn thing, the whole thing. So whatever you have to do, if that means getting rid of Ant, five picks, Nurk, you know, uh, Hart, whatever. If that's what it takes for Damian Lillard and Kevin Durant to team up, that's what you freaking do. Because at the end of the day, championship. It's not, hey, go, go to the playoffs, first round, second round. No, it's win the damn thing, the whole freaking thing. Thank you, John, and always love your show, man. Have Appreciate you. Thanks, Steve, for starting the week off uh, and avoiding uh, dropping an F-bomb in there. Good work there as well. Uh, look, I, I like I, – I wouldn't give up everything, but – I would consider everything when it comes to Kevin Durant. Like, I have I have misgivings about Durant's game and his personality, just like anybody else who's watched him over an extended period of time. I mean, you're getting a pretty thin-skinned guy. You're getting a player who hasn't won it all on his own. He is an all-NBA player, though, and he's a generational talent, and he's a guy that the franchise could have drafted in 07 had it not taken Greg Oden. So in, in some respect, if you had told me that 10 years into Michael Jordan's career, the Blazers could have a shot to uh, to bring Jordan to Portland and, and right the wrong. I mean, you and I both would be all over that. Uh, but Kevin Durant is not Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan put a franchise on his back and carried it. Kevin Durant joined the Warriors and won championships, and Warriors fans will tell you they were not the most enjoyable championships because it was distracting, and there was uh, it was catty, and it was you know backbiting, and it was, you know, he's got a, a certain... A certain uh, degree of of uh, uh, vindictiveness, and and uh, you know he's got his rabbit ears and burner accounts, and it's it's Kevin Durant. So you're taking a whole distraction along with this. That said, uh, I do want to see the Blazers try something, 
in the limelight of Damian Lillard's career. He's he's going to be 32 years old here, and you know it's time. You have a window of like two to three seasons, and then he really starts to deteriorate if you look at the historical longevity of players at his position. And let's not forget the miles that are on Damian Lillard. A lot of miles on him. He has played a lot of minutes in the NBA. Uh, and, you know, last season, I think, you know, we talk about his abdominal surgery. He broke down in a lot of ways. Let's go to Bo, who's in Coos Bay. Bo, appreciate you listening in Coos Bay. What's up? Hey, guys. Appreciate it. Love the topic. So let's let's just start off real quick and remember that Kevin Durant's under a four-year, $200 million deal. So for Nurk to tweet that out, to potentially come to Portland like the missing puzzle piece like he did, Nurk and Simons, they're gone. We need salary cap. <laughs> so let's just remember that right yeah. away. And sure. number two, what, how romantic would that be? We give up, we forget about Kevin Durant, and then we take Greg Oden, right? But for the most part, Kevin Durant would have done three or four years on his rookie contract in Portland, and he would have been gone, just like he did in OKC. So, but to now get him, I'm, I, everyone loves Kevin Durant. I love him as a player, too. But I think for him to solidify his greatness and his legacy, coming to Portland and bringing a championship to a team with, really just Dame's help would be huge. But also, let's go back to the Western Conference Finals of 18 and 19. God, our bench was stacked, right? We had so many guys coming off the bench. We had a solid front five. I'm kind of more into that, spending money on getting more guys to fit our roles all around than, quote-unquote, you know, selling the farm for Durant, I mean, put yeah. it over the salary gap. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think there's only two ways to go at this when you've got a 32-year-old star player at the center of your franchise. you got Anthony Simons. He's the future. Uh, I like the draft pick that you picked on draft night. He's also part of the future. Yusuf Nurkic is a right-now guy next two to three seasons. Damian Lillard's a right-now guy. I think uh, you uh, especially look at Jeremy Grant. He's a right-now-now guy because he becomes an unrestricted free agent at the end of this year. If it's not looking like you can make a run at the end of this year, I uh, am curious to see what the Blazers will do with Jeremy Grant. Like, will they go above and beyond to try to retain him, or will they go, look, we're totally pivoting in another direction, and we're going to do a complete rebuild, and we're going to shed all salary, and we're just going to let him walk away, and we're going to take the savings. I think it's really interesting to kind of watch what they're doing and thinking. I hadn't really considered Durant's point of view, but I think his legacy certainly has been hurt by him going to Brooklyn and you know, and him looking like you know he just wants to be Kyrie's best friend instead of, a star player who can lead a roster. Um, I don't think that Durant's legacy is as important to Kevin Durant as it is to maybe the sportscasters and broadcasters who who uh, talk about these things. He, I don't know if he's as caught up in that as, as others, but if he is, I certainly think going to a market where he would be viewed as the person coming in, putting the franchise over the top, uh, putting it on his back, he's got Lillard there, but it would be it would be Durant who is the difference maker that certainly would affect his legacy. I want you to leave it here. I got the bald face truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. So much more ahead, so much to talk about. Liv Golf coming to our region this week. I remain conflicted about it. Also, uh, J.J. Burden will be joining us on the show today. He just confirmed with me he'll be coming along here in the next half hour or so. I want you to leave it here. Former Oregon Duck wide receiver, played in the NFL a whole long time. 
And he, he says he's got something to offer college kids. J.J. Burden's still ahead. You got the BFT statewide here on the BFT Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. All right, we talked about this a a couple of few, uh, maybe a week ago. Seems like it was longer, but it was only about a week ago that we were talking on air about the GoPro dilemma that I had. I was uh, with family, and we were in Yosemite, and we were walking on some of the trails, some of the easy trails, because we got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and we were bebopping around on uh, on a Sunday, and... Uh, it was kind of a day trip into Yosemite, and it was beautiful. It was great. But uh, towards the end of our day, I was walking uh, down from one of the trails with the family, and I looked over, and sitting there was a GoPro camera. And I recognized it immediately because I have the same GoPro camera. It's relatively new. I looked at it. I thought, gosh, that's the same camera that I have. And so I looked around. There was nobody. It was getting late, and I thought to myself, do I just leave the camera up here on the trail, hoping that said person who lost their camera will uh, meander up here and grab it, or do I walk it down to the nearest ranger station and turn it in, or what do I do? And so I kind of stood there for a second, and I thought, gosh, it's getting late. It's a Sunday. If I had been up this trail and left my camera. I doubt I'm running back up to get it. So uh, I picked up the camera, and I turned it on, and I looked at the photos and the videos, and I got a really good look, like immediately, at who the camera belonged to. So I thought, too, like if I'm going down the trail and I see somebody coming up the trail who is this individual, I'll know, hey, I got your camera. Uh, And so I made the trek down the trail with the family, Of course, the six-year-old and the eight-year-old, a lot of questions about what we were doing, whose camera was it. They were very invested in finding this person. And uh, as we passed people, I I looked at them and I said, you lose a camera? No. You lose a camera? No. And so, lo and behold, we get to the ranger station. It's closed. On a Sunday, apparently in that section of the the park that we were in, they close at 5 o'clock. We were after hours and closed. Now I'm looking around. There's nowhere to put it. No one's going to be there till Monday morning. Now the camera's not where it was lost, and so now I'm going, I'm kind of hosed here. So uh, we walked through the parking lot. We drove through the parking lot. We looked for the uh, individuals. We couldn't find anybody. We hung around for a little while, and ultimately I decided, uh, Judah, as you know, as we talked about this the other day on the show, I decided we would try to crowdsource this thing and get this camera home. Um, I, uh, I know what these cameras cost cause I bought one. I bought mine. So I was doing the walk up videos going into the stadiums that I put on Instagram and, and other places. But, uh, you know, it's a nice camera. Somebody's missing this camera. And I went through all the footage hoping to find like some shot of, did they take a picture of their house? Did they take a picture of their state? All I can gather is that they were on some kind of whirlwind trip where they visited Key West, Florida. Mm-hmm. Then they visited uh, Yosemite. 
and uh, they appeared to be staying at, at a pretty nice Airbnb in Key West, by the way, that uh, they were jumping off cliffs into the water and they're jumping off the beach into the water. So pretty cool photos. But I have a I have uh, they were also riding jet skis. Uh, but I've got a bunch of photos here that I can tweet out or post somewhere else and say, hey, I have your GoPro. Uh, if this is you or you know who this person was, I found your GoPro in Yosemite. Here are some pictures. Everybody retweet it. I'm guessing and gathering that we can find this person by these photos. Question I have is let's start with this. And, you know, we've got. We've got Judah in the studio today. We've got Sean, who's back from uh, his exclusive tour of of uh, Europe, Scandinavia, and the subcontinent. Sean, where were you, man? I had COVID. See, all secretive, man. You had, how was that? <laughs> it was brutal, honestly. I, I yeah? wouldn't wish it on anyone. It's not. It wasn't a very fun sickness. I was. You, uh, yeah, I was yeah? pretty out for a couple of days there. Yeah, what did how, how did you know you had it? What was your first sign? Oh, Tuesday morning, I, I woke up and I was all congested and knew I was sick. I, I felt very, very sick. I felt like I had a cold mm-hmm. and then uh, took an at-home test, positive, went to the uh, urgent care, positive, and then, you know, the symptoms continued to change, but it definitely wasn't fun for about four days there. Were you, um, were you uh, at a wedding or something? Is that where you got it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where you I got it. You were at a wedding? Yeah. So you did you tell the bride and the groom, hey, thanks for nothing? You got me sick. <laughs> My brother was the the groom, and he, he I think he currently has uh, he currently has COVID on his honeymoon. So it, I wasn't the only oh, one that got man. this thing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but let me throw this out, and and then we have then we have Stephen. Right? Is that is that the new uh, the new cat? Yeah, Stephen is uh, he he's starting the day with us, man. We're fired up, Stephen Fawn. He is uh, he's in the okay. house as well. I can hook All him right. up with a mic if you need her. Okay, just, uh, no, here's over. here's just what I want to ask you guys. Like, I don't want to put this. I don't think it's right for Instagram. It feels like it's more it's a Facebook or it's a Twitter thing. If I post on Facebook and and I'm gonna post like maybe maybe four photos from this camera roll that this GoPro. And I say, I have your GoPro. I found it in Yosemite. If you know any of these individuals in the photos, uh, you know, please get back to me. Do you? Th- are you betting on Twitter or are you betting on Facebook to find the home of this camera? How, what's the age range of these people? These people look, uh, I'm going to put them at, let me just pull the photos up again. I'm going to put them at at least 28 but no more than 40, right in that age range. Good-looking good folk? I'm not, I don't judge like that. I mean, it's, <laughs> they're, they're just active. It, it, it's a guy, a, a girl. It's a different guy. There's a different girl. There's about four, four characters that are on here. And I, I'm not going to post any of the embarrassing photos because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But, you know, they're like some some of them are like they're in bathing suits and they're trying to jump into the water and stuff. I'm not going to post that unless I just do like a face shot. But it's um, where where is Mike Leach in any of the keywords? Mike Leach in none of them. And that crossed my mind. I almost said, Leach, do you know any of these people? But give me an idea. Give me an idea. Do you like Facebook or Twitter? What's better? Twitter's by far your your biggest following, right? That's your biggest platform. 
I got it for me personally. I there's I got about sixty four, sixty five thousand on Twitter that follow, and I've got about only about fifteen thousand on Facebook. Are you t- that age range? People going on vacay over summertime. I mean, are these mm-hmm. Twitter users? I, I feel like I don't know. Especially if they were a little little older. Obviously, you know, you'd put them in the Facebook category. Facebook might be a little Look easier a little, to tag people in comments yeah. if you want, rather than all these random. But I'm gonna post names, it in both. I'm gonna post it in both. Oh, you will. Tw- okay. Yeah, but which are you betting on? How to. F- <sighs> I'll go Facebook, begrudgingly. You're going Facebook. How about you, Sean? Yeah. No, I think Facebook is just the, the platform that more people are on. But you have such a big Twitter platform. What I'm thinking here is, like, there's no – you don't know, like, any idea, like, what sports teams these people root for. Because oh, you can reach out to your sports connections, mm. you know, if you know a coach or something. Yeah. I've looked through – I've looked through their photos. <laughs> I know way too much about these people. I've looked through the, I've looked through their photos – and I am sad to say they don't appear to be sports fans. They mm. appear to be more kind of outdoorsy. They're living their lives. They're, they're living their best life, though. Again, it made me kind of mad because I'm like, why am I not on a vacation on a jet ski in Key West? Like, you know, what am I doing over here? Wait, so it's just the hanging out. same group went to Key West and the same group followed that up by going to Yosemite? Yes. They're tr- they're yeah. living a good life. Those are good friends. Good friends, and they're all, it, and they're it, they appear to all be in the photos too. I would also say so. that you probably need to do this on the sooner end. Otherwise, if you wait too long, then it's like, yeah. oh, you've held on to these photos for like one month, two months. Like, isn't that a little weird? Well, I've been talking about it for a week, and then it's not it's not like my it's not the most important thing going on in my day. But I am. I keep looking over at the, you know, the camera sitting here in the console, and I'm like, I need to get that thing home. Uh, my goal is to get it home by, I would say, about July 15th. That was my goal. Oh, there you go. Because the other thing was, my nieces and nephews were part of the decision. Like, you know, do I take this? Do I leave it? By the way, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing by taking the camera off the trail? You you had the right intentions, right? You took it to the. Uh... To the, to the ranger. ranger station, it was closed. Rangers happened to be closed, so at that point, you either leave it outside the ranger station with felt a, weird with a felt weird to note. leave it. Yeah, how what's a GoPro going for these days? That particular model is between three and four hundred bucks. You know, it's a it's a chunk of change right there. Yeah. I I would say I like what you did. I think you did the right thing. Is it a little awkward? Yes. Is it a little bold? Yes. But that's kind of who you are. Well, I and, was thinking. I was just thinking if I leave it up there. If I'm them, I'm not coming back. I'm not going up that trail. There's probably 0% chance they get it back if you leave it there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So and you're I was giving thinking, them a chance yeah. doing it this way. I was thinking somebody else is just going to come take this thing and uh, take it away as well. So, yeah, I think I'll do it on the commercial break if I can get – I want to look for one more photo because now i got to pull out this thing and see if uh, – there's just one more photo because there was one more individual in the pictures that I thought, man, if we just ex- – I think the more people that I post, the better we have – chance we yes. have, right? great point. Yeah, because so, you're, yeah, you're increasing point of context. Six degrees of separation with this stuff. We're going to find them. We're going to find them. Yeah. That's, it's going to be – and listeners, here's the thing. As soon as I post it, I will tell you all you have to do is take a look at it, and if you don't recognize anybody, it's okay. But you, what you can do – is you can uh, you can retweet it, and then that that gives us just a better chance of getting it home. That that's how we can do this thing. So uh, in the end, that's what we will do, and uh, that's the that's the route that we will take as we attempt to uh, get this camera where it is supposed to be. All right, leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. <laughs>
to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I used to like uh, these baseball fights that happen. I used to like it because it happened so infrequently that it was, you know, it was really different to see a fight, you know. But the Mariners and Angels engaged in a brawl yesterday that lasted like 20 minutes. Uh, Full team brawl, second inning. Everybody knew it was going to happen. The Angels interim manager, Phil Nevin, and six players were ejected, along with Seattle manager Scott Service. At the brawl stopped and started twice, and then uh, he had a player throwing sunflower seeds and gum onto the field. The Mariners lost three of the four, four top four hitters in their lineup. Uh, the Angels had some uh, pitchers thrown out. It all started when uh, Jesse Winker was hit with the uh, first pitch of the second inning. And uh, it was uh, Andrew Wants who was on the mound, and he had also thrown a pitch behind the head of Julio Rodriguez in the first inning. The first pitch um, appeared to be a response to Eric Swanson's fastball that that kind of ran up on Mike Trout's head in the ninth inning on Saturday night. Um, the umpires gathered after the first pitch from Wants and then issued warnings to both dugouts. But media members who were at the game and stadium personnel who were at the game all say they believe that there was going to be a fight no matter what, that they thought this is there's going to be a brawl here. No matter what happens, we are going to see a brawl. So it was really interesting to kind of watch this thing unfold on Sunday and also know that, like, you know, there were eight games played between these two teams in a matter of like 10 or 12 days. It was eight games in 11 days against Seattle. The uh, Angels were playing, you know. So when you play each other that frequently, I think unfortunately you're going to get some tension. And uh, and Phil Nevin pointed that out. It was eight games in 11 days against the Mariners for the Angels. Um, the Angels won the game 2-1. to one. Um, They avoided being swept at home. And uh, they won four of five last week in Seattle. So this this was a I think a battle between some teams that were struggling and players who were frustrated. And you put them together for eight games in eleven days, and all of a sudden you get a bunch of tensions and you get a bunch of problems. Now, I I have felt like two things have marked this or marked this baseball season maybe more so than any other baseball season that I've ever observed. First of all, I think you have. In the case of the Mariners and the Angels, you have some teams that are struggling. I also think you have this Major League Baseball season, I think, has been infected by videos on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok that shows the umpires struggling and having having a rough time of it. So you've seen, I think, more ejections, and I think you've seen players uh, clapping back at umpires in a way that that uh, maybe they hadn't in the past, and I think you've got a whole bunch of that going on with fans as well and umpires. But the other thing is I think you're seeing, and I know the first two weeks of the season, I'd never seen teams fight at such frequency. 
I think you're seeing some teams that, you know, initially we thought it was the baseball or we thought it was the shortened spring training. I just think that there is a little bit more uh, there's a little bit more testosterone going around the the games these days, and I think the players, anytime there's a ball thrown anywhere inside or close, the players are all uh, upset about it, and you know the benches have been clearing. And I think you know I'm not counting the fights, but I feel like we have seen more fights in this baseball season to this point than I had seen at any point in any other recent years, and so I'm uh, simultaneously disappointed, I guess, in watching you know, baseball turn into hockey, but and hockey hasn't been bad in the postseason. But I'm also um, I'm also a little bit uh, wondering why the umpires and the teams have allowed it to get to this point in the first place. I, I, I don't like it. I don't think it's what the game – I don't think it's what people are paying to see. I think if it's a one-off every once in a while, we, order, we all sort of understand it. But what's happening so frequently, I think it's making it look or appear that the Major League Baseball teams are out there – throwing at each other all the time and just trying to fight. Um, I also think the umpires should have in that first inning when that first pitch is thrown behind Rodriguez in the first inning, I think the umpires at that point should have tossed somebody or multiple somebodies to send a message because when you don't do that, what you're telling the players is you're telling the players, we're not here to police you, you got to police yourselves. And I think the players ultimately will do that, and they'll do that by throwing at each other, and they'll do that. Uh, by uh, by throwing punches. Here's how it sounded in real time. Here's the pitch, and it's inside, and that hits Winker. And Andrew Watts hits him, and Watts has to go, and so does Phil Nevin. Winker walking slowly out in front of home plate, and now he's getting chirped at by the Angel players. Winker going over toward the dugout, and both benches are emptying. Winker going to the Angels dugout. He is right in there. They're starting to throw punches. Holy smokes, we got a full... Melee going on in the index circle. Everybody throwing punches. Angels out there, Mariners out there. And that was inside. It hit Winker. Winker had a few words with Stassi, walked over to the dugout. And now the umpires have their hands full trying to separate guys. Holy smokes, we have a melee in the index circle. Guys are still fighting one another. It went on for 18 minutes as the players on both teams continued to uh, go after each other in a variety of different ways. This wasn't good for the game. It wasn't good for the fans who were there. Get all that out of your head. Uh, but I also think, like, the umpires could have solved this uh, right there in the first inning had they, uh, I think, had they taken it a little more seriously when this happened. Uh, coming up, I'll give you our big splash. J.J. Burden, former Oregon Duck wide receiver, NFL receiver, who played with the Kansas City Chiefs, among other stops in the league. He'll be joining us to talk about the NFL, college football, and more. He's got some strong opinions about some of the stuff that happened with uh, University of of uh, Oregon football players who declared for the draft. J.J. Burden coming up at 4 o'clock. Want you here for it. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Beautiful day out here in the Pacific Northwest. 
I pointed out over the weekend, I pointed it out that I'm, you know, I'm native. I don't know if you're from here. But I'm not one of those haters that's like, yo, you're not native. You shouldn't be here. Go back to where you came from. I'm not that way because I'm not truly native. I guess I was born here in the state of Oregon, then left, then came back. So I don't feel right like telling people you don't belong here. In fact, uh, I think that whole thing's kind of weird. Uh, and in the 20 years I've been here, I found people to be very welcoming. So if you're not a welcoming person, I haven't probably talked to you about this. Uh, coming up at 4 o'clock, J.J. Burden will be joining us. He is a uh, former NFL player who has uh, got some things going on, and he has uh, some strong opinions about what should happen when it comes to f football players who are, uh, uh, you know, graduating or thinking about leaving to go to the NFL, what should they do? Who should they be talking to? Because in the case of the University of Oregon football players this last year, in particular, Mikhail Wright, uh, Verone McKinley, and some others, um, you didn't get, you didn't get a whole bunch of, um, you didn't get a whole bunch of uh, consensus that those players should go, you know, turn pro. And then, in fact, it turned out that they went uh, undrafted. So you had some players who, uh, you know, we we thought could be NFL players who didn't end up getting picked. And it's, you know, it's not the end of the world. I mean, they go to they go to training camp as a as an undrafted free agent. But it's such a disadvantage that they found themselves in. And I want to talk to J.J. Burton about that because he was super outspoken about it in talking about, you know, what should have happened with uh with those uh with those players and how that might, you know, stand to uh not be, you know, to be avoided in the future, so to speak. So we'll talk with JJ Burden about that coming up top of the hour. Uh later in the week and into next week, I really want to start drilling down on college football. I want Bo Nix on the show. Uh, the Oregon quarterback. I want to know what he's doing this summer. What he's what is he up to? What is happening with Bo Nix? We want to find out because I want to see if uh, I want to see if Bo Nix is uh, ready for this season opener. I had somebody ask me today. Peter Courtney, the the great uh, president of the Oregon State Senate, called me up today, and he said, uh, "What do you think about Georgia?" And I said, "As a vacation place." And he said, no, you know what I'm talking about. And we started talking about Oregon and Georgia. Now, I, I, I tend to think, look, I picked Oregon to beat Ohio State last year. I did. I uh, was ahead of the curve on that one. I picked them to beat Ohio State. And, uh, you know, the reason I picked them to beat Ohio State is I saw something in Ohio State that told me they were vulnerable. Right? It, it wasn't like I... Uh, I rubbed a crystal ball or something, but I watched a Minnesota game, and I thought, gosh, Minnesota's pushing Ohio State around a little bit on the field. I think Oregon can can hang in there a little bit. And I like that the game came for Oregon early in the season last year. I think it's a bit a very different game to play this that kind of game where you play uh, an early season game versus maybe uh, a game in Week 8. I think, you know, the good teams sort of put it together and get it, you know, get it going. Here's the wild card, though, in this Georgia-Oregon game. The game's being played in Atlanta. It's a home game for Georgia. Georgia's got talent. You look at the recruiting classes, Georgia, advantage Georgia. Georgia's the defending national champion, advantage Georgia. Georgia's playing for uh, a spot potentially in the college football playoff again, advantage Georgia. 
the advantages that Oregon has are – I have two and a half things that I think tip Oregon's way. One of them is I really like that Oregon's got a core group of players who are veterans. And that includes Bo Nix, who hasn't played a quarterback game at Oregon. But he's played some games in the SEC, started a bunch of games in the SEC. He sort of knows the lay of the land, the speed of the game. He, uh, I don't think he's going to be phased by what he sees in the season opener. Second thing that I think is tipping Oregon's way is the fact that everybody in Oregon is talking about Georgia. We've been talking about this game since the end of last season and certainly since Dan Lanning was hired as the Oregon coach. It was like, oh, it's poetry. Here's the new coach. He's coming in, 35 years old. Who's his first game going to be against? Oh, his old team. Like, there's a whole bunch of poetry there. But nobody in Georgia is talking about this game. Nobody in Georgia is worried about Oregon. And so I think you have a little bit of the Ohio State factor that we saw in week two last year where Oregon was geared for Ohio State like that was the game on the schedule. And it was the game so much so that I think later in the year when Oregon played other big games against Utah, the Ducks just weren't as locked in. And and we all know that the game for Utah was Oregon. And Oregon wasn't talking and thinking about Utah all season long, but Utah was. So I think, you know, another factor that I would tip Oregon's way is the fact that I think Oregon's players are going to view week one as their game for the season. That's the game. That's the one they have to show up in. That's the one they have to play in. I think they're going to be flying around sky high. And I kind of wonder, Georgia replacing like 20 to 22 players that were key players on that team, and Georgia playing in an opener against an opponent that they're not too worried about uh, in a game that everyone will watch, but it's more, I think it's a bigger game in Oregon's eyes in a weird way than it is in Georgia's eyes. So I think there's a little bit, there's a couple of little edges there that I would give to Oregon. I don't think the Ducks can win this game right now. Like, I'm not picking them to win this game unless I see something that happens in fall camp that just blows me away. But I think Oregon can play Georgia closer than Vegas expects them to play. Like, I believe the spread opened at like 17 to 18 points. I think by kickoff it could be down around 13 and a half. I certainly think Oregon can play Georgia, uh, 13 and a half, 14 maybe. Uh, but I think, I think Oregon can play Georgia closer than Vegas thinks. So I like Oregon plus points in this game. I actually think this could be like an 8 to 10 point game with Georgia winning uh, and and winning a little bit ugly. Now we've seen these games before. Remember uh, Oregon State played LSU in a season opener years ago that uh, save for a extra point, the Beavers might have won. Um, you know, they missed an extra point and it cost them dearly in that game. But I think this one, to me, feels like it's too it's too difficult to go on the road against an opponent that it you know has got national championship or playoff talent, and expect Oregon to win that game, especially in Dan Lanning's very first game. But you know that is that is my other half. I said I had two and a half factors. The other half is Lanning. He spent a whole bunch of time on the other side in this in this matchup. He knows Kirby Smart. He knows the personnel at Georgia. I think he's going to be well aware of a couple of few things Oregon can do to have some success. 
it's why I think this game is closer than than Vegas uh, expects it. I I think Oregon loses, but I think Oregon can play Georgia somewhere between not you know ten nine eight seven six point loss in that game. I think it it could be a really tight lower scoring game too. The way uh, I expect Landing to play, who knows? Like we haven't seen it yet, but it's kind of what I expect. Uh, but I think I think uh, Oregon plus the points in that game could be interesting. And I think if you're a Georgia fan, I don't blame you for saying you don't know what you're talking about. I don't blame you if you say to me, hey, the SEC teams are just so much better that Oregon's going to get run out of the building. I don't blame you for any of that. But I go back to Oregon-Auburn at AT&T Stadium. I go back to Oregon-Ohio State in Columbus. Hell, I'll even go back to the Chip Kelly era, and I can point out a couple of few instances where, you know, Oregon got beat but hung around. I think it's going to be that kind of game. Um, I, again, I reserve the right to make my official pick a week before the game, but that's kind of how I see that thing happening. Judah, you agree or disagree? Agree or disagree with how I'm handicapping this game? What's up, John? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oregon, Georgia. I think it's a closer game than Vegas expects. 17 and a half seems a little rich. The one thing I do uh, that does worry me, and I know it's late June, but with that defense, I know they graduated a bunch of people to the NFL, but uh, couldn't you see like a late pick six, you know, covering Georgia there? Ducks are like, you know, they're frisky. They're fighting. They're within 10, six minutes left. They're on the Georgia 40. You never know, huh? A little field goal to make it a one-possession game, and then all of a sudden, bad snap. We've seen that before in big games. Or a Bo Nix pick, and now Georgia's taking it the other way. The stadium's going crazy, and now, hey, yeah. Georgia wins by three scores. I just, I, I, I don't, I don't see it that way. And I, and I, and I'll point out, Bo Nix has played in a bunch of SEC games. Like if it weren't no. Bo Nix, yeah, maybe it's you know some quarterback playing in his first game against an SEC opponent. Yeah, but you know Georgia set a record here in the on draft day. They had 15 players drafted. Yeah, uh, they're going to be down about 18. 19 players that started for them last year. So, look, and they're just going to reload with talented guys that were, you know, backing up their their starters. That's true. But I think in game one, week one, that's when you want to be playing them. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Some news in the NBA. Kyrie Irving is exercising his player option. For next season. Adrian Wojnarowski pointing out, without the ability to find a sign-and-trade deal, Kyrie Irving will exercise his $36 million player option for next season. That'll put him back in Brooklyn. Woj having that. Thanks, Kyrie, for nothing. Thank you. That means, I guess, ultimately, you have Kevin Durant staying in Brooklyn. 
What a tease. Kyrie Irving going nowhere? Uh, I don't hear anything right All right, now. J.J. Burden. For you. Do we have J.J. Burden? Do we have him? Are we close to J.J. Burden? All right, we're efforting J.J. Burden. Feels like our phone line's crashed. Who's our phone carrier? <laughs> Can we get that done? You let me know, Judah, if J.J. Burden is available here. I think we got him, J.J. J.J. Available. Can you? Oh, J.J., Can you there? Yes. Thank you for making time. No, thank you for the invitation. It was good timing. Let's let's kick this around, J.J. Uh, you know, you and I, I think, last communicated when the Oregon football players had declared for the draft and did not get drafted. They had, uh, you know, four underclassmen who declared. It really upset you, and I, I thought you had some real wisdom. Uh, how did that make you feel? Oh, I was, I was frustrated. I was irritated because I've seemed like I've witnessed this for years now, and, and it caused me to voice my thoughts when I saw your article. What, what kind of advice do you give guys if you had a chance to talk to guys? Well, I would, you know, based on what I saw, if, I, if I've watched a player and I've kind of, kind of evaluated them in my head, and if I don't think they're ready, I'm going to give them honest feedback and tell them why I don't think they're ready and what, what I believe they need to work on to put them in a better position for the next year or whenever they're ready to actually come out. If we're talking about, you know, ready to come out, you're a guy who went to the league as an eighth-round draft pick, but you came in as a drafted player. Most of us don't go through that. What is the difference between you being drafted or you being a uh, undrafted free agent who comes into a camp? When you know, as far as the respect and the time and the patience that teams have with players. Yeah, there is a difference. When you're a drafted player, it's like you're a priority. They're going to give you every chance whatsoever to make the team. That means they're going to tolerate more of your errors and your mistakes and really coach you up because they want to look good as an organization that they made the right pick uh, in drafting you versus a free agent, you just don't get the same amount of opportunities. And when you do get a chance, you have to maximize them because you won't get that many. I think, too, when you look at the, the, the you know, the, you go into a camp, you get there as an eighth-round draft pick. How difficult was that to, to fight your way into the league and then to stick in the league as long as you did? I think about only about 2% of the players in the NFL played as long as you did, J.J. Well, here's what makes my story unique and why I really voiced my opinion because, I don't know if you remember, I tore my ACL up at rookie camp. So the first year, I was on IR with the Browns, but then the next year – yeah, I've been, I was the free agent. You know, I, I went to Kansas City. Now I'm the free agent. So I was in that role where they brought, they drafted players, and then I was the free agent. And I just watched kind of the battle I went through to try to prove that I deserved to be there. And I still got cut because these drafted players had to make the team. Fortunately, they brought me back two weeks later. Yeah, and I think, you know, you told a story about being in camp early and 
you know, you get into a sit, you get into a drill, and there's a veteran player there. And I, I'm always interested in how players mentor each other. What did you get in that in that first mini camp? Oh, that was a huge learning experience for me because that was my first camp. It was my first time to do one on one against these NFL DBs. And right away, I was humbled, you know, because I sized up the defensive back, Hanford Dixon. He was an older player on his last year. I'm much faster than him. But I quickly learned that sometimes speed and athletic ability doesn't matter when you have experience. And he jammed me, threw me on the ground, and gave me a speech that I never would ever forget. <laughs> yeah. What does he say to you? He basically, because when he threw me on the ground, I looked up at him and I just said, dang, man, it's just practice. And he turned around and got in my face and he says, rookie, in the NFL, every day is game day. You better do better than that or you will not be around here very long. And that was like a major wake-up call for me. Yeah, and I think most players don't have, I think, the luxury of a veteran player maybe giving them that wake-up call right away. Uh, the mentorship that players have in this league, I talked with Anthony Newman and Alex Molden about this in the last couple of weeks, and they were talking about how, you know, when they got to the league, they sought out mentors, and then they became mentors later. You were in much that same position, JJ. It, you know, why is it that guys were willing to help each other even though the league can be cutthroat? Yeah, that's an interesting concept because you'd think that they wouldn't, but you know, they were willing to help out the young players. And I think also, too, a lot of the veterans, like when I went to Cleveland, they had Webster Slaughter, Reggie Langhorn, Brian Brennan. These guys were in the prime of their career. They didn't feel threatened by a younger player like me, and they were willing to help. When I got to Kansas City, it was Stephon Page. He was still balling out. He didn't feel threatened by me that first year. So I appreciate they were willing to do that because then later on, I became a mentor as I help younger players who are signing with the teams I was on. Yeah, I think that's interesting because we saw, you know, Ryan Tannehill came out earlier this year and they drafted a quarterback and he said, it's not my job to mentor that guy. And he caught some heat from it because you're on a team. I mean, on one hand, yeah, that guy's trying to take your job. But on the other hand, you are, you're still teammates, right? Yeah, and, and in his case, too, he's a leader. Quarterbacks are seen as leaders of the team, so when a quarterback makes that kind of um, comment, you know, it could have a, an adverse reaction from the other players and start questioning his leadership. So I was really, really surprised he made that comment. We're talking to J.J. Burden, former University of Oregon wide receiver, played in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs and the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, I look at your career, at what point did you feel like you made it? Like, you know, you're in the league, you feel like you've got stability. What, is there ever that kind of comfort? For me, John, it was probably my fifth year. <laughs> I just felt like I was still trying to prove everybody I could make it. And, and that first year in Kansas City, I had a lot of long touchdowns. And the next year, they drafted some guys, so I didn't play much. And then the very last game of that 91 season, I had a game where I had eight catches, 188 yards, two touchdowns of 52 and 57 yards. And then the next year, they asked me to be a starter. And that's when I felt like I really finally had made it. But once you make it, then you have to make sure you stay there so you're never putting in that work. You're never going into that complacency mindset, you know? 
Yeah, and I think uh, you know most people in in most jobs don't have that urgency or somebody sitting on their shoulder. But every year in the NFL, they're drafting new players, they're trading for players, and you know they're trying to replace you or get better uh, and upgrade at every position. We're talking to JJ Burden. You know, um, there right now you have players who are leaving college early, but you have name image likeness. And I really think we hit on something when you and I were talking about this a few weeks ago that there's a there's a real absence of um, you know uh, mentorship or maybe a liaison position that could serve to advise players on hey look uh, when you get to the NFL everybody's good everybody's the best player from their college team and 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 give them an eye opening to uh, how abrupt that transition can be. Do you think that's a conversation, or does it have to be kind of an ongoing, you know, uh, relationship that you have with players to establish some trust and rapport? I think it's a combination of both. I think even one conversation, you could really provide some very valuable feedback. Um, to give you an example, I had lunch with Devin Allen like four months ago, and he was telling me he was going to, you know, go for the NFL. And during that lunch, I told him over and over again, spend time working on beating man-to-man. That is going to be your biggest challenge when you get to the NFL. You know, so, but, but on the same point, if you have the opportunity to kind of mentor someone and kind of guide them along and give them information as they're going too, I think it's going to be very valuable because one is we don't have an ulterior motive except where we want our, our, the players who played at the schools that we played at to be successful when they go to the NFL. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, with Mario Cristobal left Oregon last year, I think there really wasn't somebody for, a, a, you know, a good five, six weeks. There was nobody there to tell the players, hey, come back here, stay here. There's something for you here. And I think that's an important message. J.J. Burden, our guest, former NFL wide receiver. Uh, life after football, how difficult is that transition after the game? Oh, it's very difficult. It really is because – you go from being a professional athlete, then all of a sudden you're kind of a, a broke down, physically beat up athlete who's got to make a transition. And um, for me, John, I think I was one of the fortunate ones because I never expected to play in the NFL. Then to get nine years in the NFL, I was ready to make that transition. So I was always planning for life after football. But for some of these guys who are raised and groomed to be in the NFL and they think they're going to be there forever, I think some of them struggle with it because they, they thought they would have a longer career. But the average NFL career has dropped to less than two years, and I just think some players aren't ready for that transition. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I think you're seeing that kind of turnover. Um, you know, you talked about getting ready for the next phase, like you were preparing for life after football. How do you do that when you're told by the game that this needs to be your life? You need to be all in. You need to be at every, you know, every waking moment needs to be focused on what you're doing and getting better and being prepared. And simultaneously, though, we all know that it isn't going to last forever. That's That's got to be a tricky balance as a player. It really is. It truly is. But I think today, I think the athletes have an advantage because social media really opens up opportunities to network. Because really, when you're playing in the league 24-7, it's NFL. 
but you still can start networking and developing those connections and those relationships, especially in the off-season, to really put yourself in a position to have options when your career is over. And so I tell players, I say, when do you start planning for life after the game? When you start playing on day one, you start building those relationships. You know, I, I was looking at film uh, during the commercial break, Steve DeBerg to J.J. Bird, and it's that first touchdown after the ACL tear, after you got cut by the Browns, after the Cowboys let you go, you were cut by the Chiefs, you sign back three weeks later, and you score a touchdown. That's incredible resilience. Oh, thank you. That was That is the highlight of my career, I think, because not everybody at the time knew what I went through just every setback, challenge, obstacle I went through. But, um, you know, everybody saw me as an underdog, John, and, and that was okay because I didn't believe I was an underdog, and I knew I could make it once I got healthy. So when I scored that first touchdown, you, you probably see me, I didn't want to let go of that ball because it was just a long <laughs> journey to finally making it to the league. Yeah. What was it like What was it like to play with DeBerg? Because I think you look at his career – you know, he gets replaced by Joe Montana in San Francisco, but he kind of he hung around, played for a long time. Yeah, DeBerg was a warrior. I mean, he he was a warrior. He he he'd get beat up in these games, and he'd be hurting, but it didn't matter. You know, the guy would show up, and he would do his job. And what I loved about him is he was the master at the play action, and because he was so good at it, I caught a lot of bombs from him. You know. Yeah, look at at your size too to play in the league. I mean, I I talked with uh, Alex Molden about that. He said he you know he worked out against you one time when he was trying to figure out if he was ready for the league, and it was the same thing. Like you could flat fly, and I think it surprised him how quick you were, how fast you were. But I got to think a lot of defensive backs were they would look at you, JJ, and go, "Look, uh, I'm going to throw this guy down, and I'm going to jam him at the line of scrimmage, not let him get into his route." Yeah, and John, that's what happened the first, you know, two years because my true weight was 157 pounds. And when I realized that these DBs who are 6'2", 6'3", and they're 200 pounds, if they could push me out of bounds, I made a goal that the defensive backs weren't going to get their hands on me. And I spent a lot of time working on mastering the ability to be bump and run. And it became one of my competitive advantages to where I knew that when I got one-on-one and that DB was looking at me, he was a little worried knowing that if he didn't get his hands on me, I was gone. You are uh, helping people now, uh, FASCO, F-A-S-C-O. Tell me what that is. Yeah, basically, I, you know, I became a professional speaker about six years ago, um, and I came up with the acronym Failures, Adversity, Setbacks, Challenges, and Obstacles because I just feel that everybody deal with these, these moments in their life, and that was my NFL career. It was filled with it, but if I can show people kind of how I overcame those moments and how it made me better, and that's what um, you know, I'm passionate about, helping others overcome such challenges to go on and achieve the goals that are important to them. Now, you and your wife have done something amazing. You, you have three children. You have also adopted five children. You live in Scottsdale, Arizona now, but five kids adopted. What went into that? And, you know, bless you, you know, you, you caught up with Alex Molden just about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, you know, sometimes life throws your curveball. You got to call an audible, right? And um, <laughs> that's what happened. You know, my, 
my sister, you know, she passed away, and her five children were going to be placed in five separate foster homes, and I fly up to Tulsa to check on them, and then 24 hours later, I'm in a courthouse, and the judge tells me they're going to be put in foster homes, and I did what any smart husband would do. I called yep. my wife first, <laughs> and um, we were like, let's bring them in, and we did. You know, we raised all eight of them, and the youngest one moved out last year, so, John, we're finally empty nesters. How did that feel? Because I've got three. We just sent our first off to college, and it was it was a little jarring. But when the last of eight go, what is that like? It has been amazing. Um, I told my wife, I said, we're in the fourth quarter. I said, the first quarter was, you know, we got married, and second quarter is when we had our children. Third quarter was when we added the five. Now they're gone. I said, the best is yet to come. So we're really enjoying <laughs> kind of getting to know each other again, you know. What a gift uh, to those kids as well. So I, I commend, you know, you and your wife for stepping in there, and, you know, it's a – it's a, a fantastic uh, gesture that you guys did and a commitment that you made to those other kids. So thanks for taking care of all those kids, JJ. Um, let's go back to Lake Ridge High School, Lake Oswego, University of Oregon. You stayed in state. How, how important was that for you to stay in state and go to a college in the state of Oregon? It was real important to me because I wanted to stay home because a lot of the top athletes – at least the majority in Oregon were always going out of the state. And when I saw that, um, you know, Chris Miller and, you know, other athletes like Anthony Newman and obviously Latin Berry, we all kind of wanted to stay there. The irony was, though, John, even though I was the number one high school wide receiver, no Division One school offered me a scholarship in football. But Oregon's track team or track coaches were the only ones that said, if you come run for the Ducks and if you can convince Rich Brooks to let you walk on the second year, you have our blessing. And all I saw was an opportunity, and that's all I wanted to do, and I convinced Brooks, and he gave me a shot. That's fantastic. J.J., hey, I appreciate you making time for us. Thanks for uh, for dealing with us as we uh, we had a little technical issue getting you on the phone. But, I, you know, I, I'd love to get you back on as well. But I, I do think Oregon – should talk to you, bring you in, bring Anthony Newman in, bring Alex Molden in, let you talk to the kids about getting to the next level, staying at the next level, and then, as you have done really well, like preparing for life after football. I mean, I think it's such a journey you're on. Yeah, and thank you, and I agree. I think to do it right, you need a committee. And There's a lot of former players who are paying attention to what the Ducks are doing, and I think, like the guys you named and some other ones, we could give very valuable input to these players and give them honest feedback because you only get one shot to make the right impression in the NFL and we want to set them up for success. Yeah, I wrote the column where I quoted you and we, you know, our conversation, Dan Lanning reached out to me. He says, I'm showing this to my players now. And I, I thought, you know, go one better, have JJ come talk to him. JJ, I appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks, John. Take care. Really good stuff from JJ Burden. And look, it's one thing to get to the NFL. I mean, it's hard enough. Look at the draft. Look at look at what happens in the league, the longevity of players. One thing to get there. And then you talk about staying in the league. Uh, you have a guy like J.J. Burden who is nine years in the NFL. That is top 2% among players historically who have played the game. Alex Molden, eight years in the NFL, top 2%. Uh, Anthony Newman, 12 years in the NFL. That's top 1%. Uh, 
Um, I think it's incredibly difficult. You have some great cases of guys who have made that leap and then stuck there. And I, it's really a theme that I've been on here for a couple of few weeks as I've talked to former players. It's like harder to get to the league or stay in the league. And they all say staying in the league is more difficult than getting to the league. And it's in, it's your, you know, it's like a lightning strike odds. It's, you know, the odds of you getting to the NFL are, you know, are slim to begin with. Now, talk about staying in the league. And then while you're in the league, monomaniacally focused on staying in the league, some people are whispering to you, you better prepare for life after football. Well, how do you do that when you're supposed to be all in every day with that job? It's counterintuitive. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's in the studio. We're going to change the energy of the show. That's what we're going to do. Every time a guest comes on, we change the energy of the show. Anna, how are you? I'm great. How are you? We're changing the energy. Are we going up or down? We're going up. Okay, up. We're okay. changing the energy of the show. Because I can, uh, I can bring us down. All right. Here's the, uh, here's the deal. I'm going to pepper you with some topics. You okay. don't need to be prepared for any of this. That's good because I'm not. Okay. So here we go. We're going to start with this one. <laughs> Topic number one. I could call it three random things. That would be kind of fun to like go back into like the annals of show history. Mm-hmm. We used to do a bit called Three Random Things, and then we would uh, – they had nothing to do with each other, and that's kind of what we're doing here, right? Yeah. Let's play Three Random Things. Number one random thing comes out of the state of Washington, Bremerton, Washington. There's a high school football coach in Bremerton, Washington, who caused a stir, and this went to the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of talk about the Supreme Court lately. Yeah. But this is a uh, case that uh, the Supreme Court looked at today. Uh, A high school football coach in Washington State wanted to kneel and pray on the field after games. Uh, He started coaching – High school football in 2008. We're talking about Joseph Kennedy, who uh, coached at Bremerton High School. He coached, coached the varsity team at Bremerton, and he was the head coach of the JV team. So he was an assistant on the varsity and a head coach on the JV team. Mm-hmm. He started coaching in 2008. He began praying alone at the 50-yard line at the end of games. He would walk out to the 50. He would take a knee. Students started joining him, and over time, he began to deliver a short inspirational talk with religious references at the 50-yard line after the games Mm -hmm. okay so it turned into a mini sermon now he did that for years and he also led students in locker room prayer the school district was alerted to what he was doing in 2015 Mm -hmm. seven years after he started it somebody finally went hey this guy's out there in the middle of the field and he's saying prayers get him out of there right okay so they asked him to stop they told him that the district could be sued for violating students religious freedom rights and he said uh, okay I won't lead students in prayer in the locker room and on the field but I want to continue to kneel in prayer on the field myself after games right school said no 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 you can't pray on the field because you're on duty as a coach after the games so 
he ignored them and continued to pray. Mm-hmm. You know where this goes. The right. school put him on paid leave. Um, the head coach of the varsity team later said, this is a big distraction. We can't have this. Recommended that he not be rehired because he failed to follow district policy. Kennedy, the coach, sued. And his case ended up in the Supreme Court today. Um, and he won a victory today. Uh, it was a 6-3 to three decision. The court ruled uh, along... Uh, you know, along the uh, lines that they were expected to rule. They ruled that uh, he should have been allowed. He had a constitutional right to pray on the field. They said it's his First Amendment right to go onto the field and pray. Um, I got a couple of couple of questions here. Like, we're religious people. Mm-hmm. Judah's religious people. Okay? Mm-hmm. I can't speak for all the listeners, but I think there's probably some people out there that are religious people. Um, I don't see the harm in an individual praying or having a moment of silence or uh, having a touchdown celebration to themselves. It all seems to fall under the same thing for me. It, it, you know, Should I be a Supreme Court justice? It feels like this was a no-brainer for the district. Um, guy wants to pray by himself? We're going to say no? I don't think it's – well, I mean, I'm assuming that it goes out of the way to the Supreme Court because it's not that simple. I think when you fold in the notion that this is, in fact, a public school, um, and the fact that the thing that comes to my mind is that he's a coach, right? Yeah. Like he's the head coach, if I'm not JV mistaken. head coach, varsity assistant. JV head coach. So where I think there becomes an issue potentially is if players feel like they need to pray with him Otherwise, they don't. Their playing time, let's say, is affected, mm-hmm. right? Because it's kind of like if you're in a position of authority and you are the person who's determining a player's time on the field, position, and that sort of thing, you might inadvertently, as a player, feel pressure to participate in a, a public statement of faith and prayer yeah even if you don't necessarily ascribe to that what if the coach had knelt during the national anthem well we've seen that so right. it's, it's a it's kind of like a, a point of activism right but i'm what i'm saying is you know what if he had dropped down and done crunches at half th- you know at halftime mm-hmm. by the teams walking to the locker room like i just don't see the issue with any of it like He's a coach. He is saying, "Look, I, you know, I'm having an issue with the national anthem. I'm going to kneel." Yeah. Uh, he, he's a coach. He says, "You know, I'm a religious person. I'm going to say a prayer." Yeah. He's a coach. He says, "You know, I didn't get my crunches in today. I'm going to do some crunches at midfield while the team's walking off." Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see the issue with any of that. Like he's expressing himself in a way that you know is you know as long as he's not saying to the players, "You have to also do these things." I don't see the issue, and apparently the Supreme Court agrees with me. Yes, and and so I I do see that. I'm just I'm curious about what the public sentiment would be if this coach happened to be Muslim, some other religion mm. that is not as popular in you know America, which is considered a Judeo-Christian. And there are different prayers country. too. Like you know, I've been on teams. Yeah, all of my teams had people that said prayers. Yeah. My high school teams, we had coaches that would say, hey, if you want to pray, here's a prayer. Sure. And some of the prayers were short and sweet. Yeah. 
Like when we ask our six-year-old to pray at the dinner table, and she says, uh, "Thank you for the food, yeah. Amen." And uh, then sweet. she's one bite into her like her corn or whatever she's eating <laughs> right. while she's saying, "Amen." Oh, you mean last um, time? Yeah. But uh, other times I've had coaches who do like what feels like a twenty-minute, you know, sermon. Yeah. It, but it's disguised as a prayer, and yeah. I start to look around, going like, you know, hey, coach, there are some people here that you are, you know, reaching for the first time. Sure. Might be might be a good idea to go light. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you, know, you know what I mean? You don't yes. want to give them like the big speech. Right. On this one. Right. But uh I've never I've never taken the issue like and and look, Oregon and Oregon State, both those teams go to midfield. They have players who go to midfield after the games. Mm-hmm. And we'll pray. Yeah. And it's not everybody, but it's like 20 or 30% of the team I see, and generally it's players on both teams sometimes that go and join together right. at midfield, and they kind of go, hey, there's something bigger than this game that's going on here. Right. All right, so that's issue number one. The Supreme Court is saying if you're a high school coach, you are allowed to pray. Another lawsuit was filed uh, against the Houston Texans. They were formerly named as defendants today in a civil litigation that is ongoing that names uh, Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans. Uh, They are uh, Tony Busby, the Houston attorney who at one time was representing 25 different women, says that we believe the Texans knew or most certainly should have known of Deshaun Watson's conduct. So they have filed a lawsuit against the Texans in which they are alleging that the Texans enabled him. How do you read that one? How about them apples? That's interesting. So now, I mean, I think most of those lawsuits have been settled, right? All but like four of them. Twenty of the twenty-four are have settled. been settled. Yeah. Yep. So now they're reaching further back, right, to say, "Hey, Texans, there's essentially blood on your hands as well." Well, I think they were successful in getting Deshaun Watson to settle twenty of those. Yes. I think they're now looking at what entity is the next best entity that's got deep pockets and it's the Houston Texans. It beyond that it's gonna be the NFL. I, I wonder if the NFL right now is bristling or if their ongoing investigation of Deshaun Watson is in jeopardy because they are potentially a defendant yeah. now in a civil case. Yeah. Because I think the next thing is it's the it's going to be the Texans. Texans are going to have to settle, and then it's going to be the NFL. Okay, you were complicit too. What did you do? What didn't you do? Why didn't you know what Deshaun Watson was doing? Yeah. So the lawsuit says that, um, you know, that the Texans were aware that Deshaun Watson was seeking out unqualified strangers for massages via Instagram, mm-hmm. and that they enabled him, despite the behavior. The Texans, rather than investigated, provided Watson with an NDA to protect himself and had uh, the uh, team security personnel advise him on how to not have this be a public problem. Apparently, that didn't work. But Deshaun Watson, not the only one in trouble here now because of Deshaun Watson. I mean, I I understand that these plaintiffs are going after more entities, and their claim is going to be that this was basically a system failure, that the system was enabling somebody that they have labeled a predator. I think in the court of public opinion, 
it may not sit well because I think that a lot of people will look at this and be like, wow, okay, you've already gotten the settlements uh, out of most of the cases. Now you're just money grabbing um, after more deeper pockets and eventually the NFL. Yeah, the NFL uh, was engaged in settlement talks with Deshaun Watson. It, they uh, they were unable to, to reach a settlement. Um the the whisper is the league wants a full year suspension for Deshaun Watson, mm -hmm. and that Deshaun does not want to sit for the full year, and the Cleveland Browns <laughs> don't want him to sit for the full year. <laughs> On the other hand, the league could just say, Deshaun, lie down. We'll have a masseuse be right with you, and then just wait 12 months. You know what I mean? Jeez. Like, that would be the way for the league to get around this, you know? We'll be right in. We'll knock before we come in. Come back in a year. You know, on the flip side, no one's going to think that the Texans didn't know, right? Like, the Texans aren't getting... Oh, they knew. Like, no no one actually believes that the Texans, you know, stuck their heads in the sand in this whole time and are going to play like, oh, yeah, we had no idea that he had this habit of hiring people for massages, not massages. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> massages, not massages. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, the, the the teams know. Any team, any coach, any college coach who tells you, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know what my guys were doing. Oh, I didn't know he had that incident in his past. Yeah. I mean, either they're grossly incompetent or they're lying. Right. Like, you know, because. We've this, seen it time it, and again. Yeah, this is your primary asset. This plausible deniability thing doesn't work. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, third topic. By the way, I think he's going to get a year suspension. I think the NFL will not come off that. Third topic, Adrian Peterson, running back. Le Le'Veon Bell, running back. They have decided they want to fight each other. They're going to put on a boxing exhibition in Los Angeles at Crypto.com Arena. <laughs> no better place for it. July 30th, the former running backs will compete in an exhibition. It will not be a pro boxing debut because it's not sanctioned as a pro fight. But this is uh, the next in this trend of big-time athletes and social media stars crossing into boxing. So we've seen uh, Darren Williams of the NBA do this, Jake Paul do this, Frank Gore did this. Peterson and Bell will be on the undercard of a fight that uh, is called Social Gloves 2. It's promoted by a YouTube star named Austin McBroom, and he is going to fight another YouTuber in the main event. There's a rapper named Blueface who's going to fight former NBA player Nick Young on the undercard as well. What are we doing to boxing? I don't really understand it. Like, do these guys need money? Do they need more fame? Aren't they pretty set on the money thing? I don't know. So is it just a, a flex that they can and so they will? They're both free agents. Adrian Peterson's 37, and he's a free agent. He played four games last year. He, uh, you know, he he could end up on an NFL team, but he, I I think it's a little bit of a long shot. Le'Veon Bell is 30. He's also a free agent. He played eight games last year with uh, Tampa Bay and and Baltimore. But first of all, I don't really want. I don't even want to see these guys play football, let alone fight. <laughs> right. Like, they're past their prime. I don't understand it. Like, so to me, and by the way, I don't go to YouTube to see YouTubers fight. 
I go to YouTube to see them put together like Lego things and explain things that I don't under, understand how to do in the yard. Like you know, how do I how do I put the uh, how do I put the string on the weed whacker? How do I you know? Tell me you know, I, 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 electrical help, plumbing help. I'm all for it, but I don't want to go to YouTube to see YouTubers pummel each other. That's not what YouTube is for. And here's the thing: like, how bad are they going to wind up hurting each other? You know, yeah. in the ring. Well, maybe. People but who maybe don't, they don't have this kind of experience. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's a really quick fight. <laughs> I don't know. Leave it here. That's three <laughs> random things. More ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. Pretty dang cool. Congrats to the Avalanche. I wish we had an NHL team in Oregon. But uh, I want to thank Brian, one of our researchers, who uh, located the Spanish play-by-play -play call of Colorado's win over Tampa Bay in Game 6. Colorado won the series four games to two. Anna, you ready for this? I'm ready. I love these calls. Here it is. In Espanol. It just sounds better in Spanish. It does. It does. What is that? It, it, it's All a romance language. Uh -huh. It's a romance language. Here's the Spanish call from Carolina Panthers radio a few years ago when uh, Graham uh, Gano hit a 63-yard field goal to win a game. Okay? You tell me you wouldn't want this guy calling your kids Little League games. Le ha sobrado distancia. Le van a servir. Tiene altura. Tiene profundidad. Va a llegar. Va a llegar. ¡Gano lo ganó! 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 ¡Señor! ¡Gano lo ganó! ¡Gano lo ganó! ¡Yo sí le voy! ¡Le voy a los patas! ¡Taca, taca, 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 taca! ¡Yo sí le voy! ¡Le voy a los patas! You talk about changing the energy right there. <laughs> that guy. I want that guy just to narrate our lives. <laughs> just the soundtrack to yes. our lives would be terrific. Yes. In I, spells. I think, you know, over time it might be a bit much. but It's not general. the same in some other languages. Here's a Russian call, okay? A Russian call. Uh, I believe this was a NCAA tournament game. I don't know. But just... Tell me if this translates. Chris 
Фантастика! Какая концовка у национального финала! Да, сегодня, сегодня действительно Виланова. Даже думать не надо, победа была, бросок был забит под сирену. И такого в национальном финале бросок... We're big in Russia over here. But you see what I mean? It's not the same. Yeah. There's, uh, there's something about Spanish language and a call like that that mm -hmm. just, you know, it's just, uh, it's good. Uh, I, uh, I think uh, that was the uh, Villanova uh, call of uh, them winning the national championship in, in men's basketball in 2016, in case anybody's <laughs> wondering. That's how it sounded. In, in case you don't speak Russian. Oh, by the way, I have the same call in Spanish. What? The same game. Okay, here it is. I love that. <laughs> See? It's the staccato. It's the combination of staccato and then the stretching of the vowels. Yeah, and I think the influence of soccer as well, because you get those soccer commentators who will go, go! Uh -huh. You know, and they have, there's just, there's more theater to it yeah. anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I think sports lends itself anyway to the dramatization or, or hyperbole. It does. Like, we know that. They turn on any broadcast, any television show related to sports, and everybody's trying to, like, go <laughs> over the top with everything. Mm -hmm. You know? It's why, like, the New York Yankees PA announcer, now batting, Derek Jeter. <laughs> like, that's... That's why it works. Because it's the antithesis. Because you go, oh, this is Yankee Stadium. This is like a museum. Like this isn't, you know, we don't. This isn't a club. Right. You know. So I think they uh, they do that. It, how about how about in like Taiwanese, in Mandarin? Yeah. Because I remember going to the Olympics with you, and all uh -huh. the people in the crowd were yelling Jio. Which way? By the way, what does Jio mean? It means like let's go, but like the direct translation is sort of like add fuel. Add <laughs> which fuel. Is strange. <laughs> So, so Jaya sounds better than add fuel, put on the gas. All right, so when I get to the gas station, <laughs> should I roll my window down as I'm pulling in and yell, yeah, Jayo! you actually could. I mean, you actually huh, could. What's the proper pronunciation of that? Jayo. 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 Down and then up. Jayo. Mm -hmm. Okay, there we have That's why you come to the show, people. <laughs> and I welcome you if you're just tuning in from Helsinki or from uh, anywhere else on this globe. We've got it for you. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up top of the hour, Anna and I will give you the five at five. Five big things going on. Got to say, I am... Uh, Grateful for the staff, the support staff of this show, and Judah, you and the team there scrambling around. Uh, listeners, you don't care about this, and I don't want you to have to worry about it, but the phone lines, for some reason, went down early in the show, and J.J. Burden was supposed to join at 4 o'clock, and we uh, reverse-engineered that one, and 
had him join in a very unorthodox way. I hope it wasn't too distracting. I think we pulled it off. I was having a hard time because I was hearing my own voice when I was talking to JJ, so you may have encountered uh, me being a little bit out of sorts or out of rhythm, but again, like I tell the staff, like, you know, the listeners, you, listeners, you have your own issues. You're dealing with bad bosses. You're dealing with barking dogs. You're dealing with injuries and health issues and you know i think uh, the last thing you want to do is tune into a radio show and hear hey we're having this problem or that problem but i'm just proud of the way you guys rallied good job judah and team there yeah team uh team did great john but good job by you staying flexible hope that doesn't happen again and uh thanks for jj for uh for joining i felt flexible. bad for jj because at the beginning <laughs> we'll of the call again. yeah it, yeah at the beginning of the call i could tell we were just a little off yeah. and but we settled down. I think I think the interview was good. Anna, you've been on TV when you have an issue like that. Like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's called well in TV. It's mix minus, and so you're getting like a delay in your yes. own ear of yourself speaking. Yeah. But on a three second delay, it's incredibly distracting. It was well, we we powered through it. Coming up, the five at five. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, we're in the happy hour. I hope you're having a great day. You live in a great part of the country. If you're listening on a podcast and you don't live in the Pacific Northwest, wish you were here. It's beautiful. Gorgeous day. What's the temperatures like out there, Anna? It's warm and sunny. I like it warm like that. <laughs> you took the girls roller skating. Yeah. You took them to the park. They were uh-huh. playing pickleball. Yeah. That's what a summer's supposed to be, roller skating and pick or pickleball. <laughs> Good stuff. And splash pads. And splash pads. We got the five kind of and sort of important biggest things going on in the world of sports coming up. This hour right here, we'll start with the five at five, then a whole bunch more. Anna, you ready for this? Not really, but it's going to happen anyway, so yeah, I'll roll with it. That's that's smart. See? You're going to go with it. There's, there's only one answer there. Let's do it. The five at five. The five kind of sort of important biggest things going on that you have to know. Well, let's start. Let's start with Marlon Briscoe. Do you know who Marlon Briscoe is? Me? No idea. You should know Marlon Briscoe. He was the first black starting quarterback in the AFL more than 50 years ago. He was 76. He passed away today in California. He had been hospitalized for some time with circulation issues in his leg. He had pneumonia. He was a star quarterback at Omaha University. The Denver Broncos drafted him in the 14th round in 1968 as a defensive back. He told the team, I'll go home and become a teacher if you don't let me try out at quarterback. So Denver agreed. And the guy nicknamed the Magician, Marlon the Magician Briscoe, nearly rallied the Broncos to a victory as a reserve against the New England Patriots. They were called the Boston Patriots then. And then he got 
to start a game on October 6th. He made history. He started five games that season. By the way, he was runner-up for the AFL Rookie of the Year. He threw for 1,600 yards and 14 touchdowns. Denver did not give him a chance to compete for the job in 1969. He was released. He caught on with the Buffalo Bills and became a Pro Bowl wide receiver with the Bills. This was at a time in which black quarterbacks were being denied, right? And Marlon Briscoe passed away today at the age of 76. I'm glad you know his name and his story. More people should have. And a number two in the five at five. Thanks for that. I don't know why this story amused me so much, but the Colorado Avalanche, in winning the Stanley Cup, took all of five minutes to dent the iconic trophy as they celebrated the win. So they beat the Tampa Bay Lightning in six games, their third title in franchise history on Sunday, but I think it's hilarious that their star wing, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, I'm sure, here, Nicholas Abekugel. Yep. He was too pumped because when he went to go take the group pick with the actual trophy, he slipped on the ice and dented the hardware. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Probably not the uh, not the first time. Did you know there's superstition around the cup? Really? No. You're not supposed to touch it. Until or unless your team has rightfully won it. Oh. So there's a superstition that it's bad luck if you're a kid even. Uh-huh. And you want to be a hockey player, if you touch the Stanley Cup. Yeah. It's supposed to it's like a curse. curse you from winning it again. <laughs> a couple of the Avalanche players were yelling out in the celebration, see, it's not a curse because they had touched it prior to winning the Stanley Cup. Uh-huh. So, well, maybe that explains the fall of the dent. The dent. It's a cool trophy, though. It's cool that it, it it's like a, you know, it's a perennial trophy. Yeah. Like, you know, their name gets etched on the side of it, and it becomes part of history. Yeah. More sports should do that. It is a gigantic trophy. Oh, you got to have a lot of names on it. Yeah. The Stanley Cup. Lord Stanley. That's number two in our five at five. I love that. Number three in our five at five, let's go this way. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about I was gonna do the Colorado Avalanche, but let's skip over that. Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner is still in Russia and still being detained. A Russian court today scheduled her trial. She's going on trial. Wow. Her trial will begin Friday. Are you ready? According to her lawyer, the court ordered her to stand trial on Friday, and they ruled that her detention will be extended six months pending her outcome of the trial. Now, she's being held in Russia since her arrest at a Moscow airport on allegations of attempted drug smuggling. She went to the preliminary hearing in person. She was handcuffed. She was flanked by guards. In vests. She wore a gray t-shirt and glasses. I saw a photo of it. Um, She was arrested February the 17th. She had cannabis oil in her luggage. And they accused her of smuggling significant amounts of a narcotic substance. The offense is punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Here's the photo of her, Anna. I saw that. She didn't look too happy. 
She's handcuffed to the uh, Russian guards, but she's going on trial. Feels like she's being used as a political pawn here. <laughs> yes, and, uh, yeah, and here's the deal. Like, the State Department is reiterating that she is being wrongfully detained. I'm, I'm waiting for, like, Mission Impossible here. Let's get her out of there. What a victory that would be for America. Bust her out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Send in SEAL Team 6. Yeah. Let's get her. Let's free her. <laughs> I want to see this movie. Like, let's do it. The other lesson to be learned is if you're in Russia, don't put don't put anything in your luggage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, some people are trying to make this about, well, the WNBA wasn't playing its, paying its players enough, so Brittany Griner had to go over there to play. Right. I think it's much simpler. When you're packing your luggage and you're in Russia or China, <laughs> if in doubt, it's out. Leave it out. Leave it out. Throw it away. Brittany Griner. That's number three. Number four, Anna, go. I just hope she makes it back on American soil safely. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in this article on Deadspin about Shohei Otani. And the speculation that he really needs to not be an angel anymore. The writer, Noah Cameras, is saying that his days in red are numbered, that when he chose the angels back in 2017 in the offseason that it made sense, but it just no longer makes sense for him to be part of that franchise anymore, that it's time for him to move on, that he has outgrown the angels. I'm fascinated by that. Do you think that's true, though? Because that, to me, that flies in the face of everything that we know as competition. Like, you're not supposed to need to be a New York Yankee to win a championship. But we all know, you know, if you look back in history, you know, they win more frequently than other franchises. You know, you, I, I think I get what they're saying, but he's in the L.A. market. He's in Anaheim. He, you know, he's in a sport where... You know, baseball's profile is not as big as the NFL or the NBA right now. But he's right there. I don't think he needs to be in New York. I don't think he needs to be in Boston. I think, you know, he's just fine where he is. The bigger issue I had with Otani is, did you see him during this brawl, Judah? This Mariners-Angels brawl? I saw him kind of, you know, holding back a little bit. I don't I don't know if he, Otani he got his hands dirty. He's a lover, not a fighter. He's a lover, not a fighter, that's for sure. Yeah. He was hanging out at the back of the scrum, and he was kind of patting another player on the shoulder, and I think they were kind of agreeing that neither one of them wanted to fight, and he was just kind of hanging out. <laughs> so, I didn't know that last year the National League added uh, the DH, and that Otani even had a rule designed specifically for him known as the Shohei Otani rule. That allows a player to be taken out as the starting pitcher but remain in the game as the DH. Yeah, the universal DH. Yeah. I don't like it. I like when the pitcher hit. Mm-hmm. And don't give me this, oh, you wanted to see some guy hit 083? Eh, you know, I actually did. Because every once in a while, the pitcher would do something. <laughs> and, you know, gave the opposing pitcher, you know, one batter where they were like, okay, you have a reasonable certainty that you're getting this guy out. Like, you can at least get this guy out. But I get it. Everyone wants to see offense. But Otani, I think he's fine in Anaheim. The problem is that Anaheim's not winning. When Anaheim's winning, everybody loves it. Mm -hmm. But it's good for Mike Trout. It's not good enough for Otani. Come on.
That's a reach. That's what we call a reach, okay, in the sports world. <laughs> By the way, welcome to the DH rule, Anna. Thanks. Yeah. You're on. You're I'm on. learning. I'm learning behind everyone else. Yeah. That's, it's <laughs> fine. I'm sure you weren't the only one. Like somebody out there was like, oh, no, there's no, yeah. no more DH. Yeah. Okay. Just here to help. There you go. Question raised in the Olympic world. Why is Norway so good at the Winter Games? You know? Norway set a record for the most gold medals uh, in uh, in uh, the last Winter Games. Norway has only 5 million residents, mm-hmm. and yet they are historically one of the best Winter Olympics countries. When Don't you look you at the medal count. Don't you know? It. I know it's weather, okay, but there's another answer because there are other countries that have cold weather. Oh, it's haven't you ever met a Norwegian? I don't know, have I? You would have to tell me that. Do, do we have a neighbor who's from Norway? No, he's Swedish. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I think. Apologies if you're listening. Uh, same thing. Same thing. No, it's uh, not. <laughs> here's the reason why Norway's so damn good in the Winter why? Olympics. Okay? Why? Okay, so <laughs> Norway, there's a there's a there's a there's a thing called the Inequality Adjusted Human Development Index. Have you ever heard of it? Good. Gosh, no. Okay. that's a lot of words. Okay. It it uh, it measures sort of um, your access or your ability to uh, to get to resources. Okay. Okay. So uh, an affluent person in the United States might fall high on the inequality adjusted human development index versus somebody who's in India living among three million people and in poverty. Okay. 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 Or billions of people in poverty. Okay. So where the interesting thing is Norway is number one on that index, not the US. And it's because they have five million people. They have uh the very wealthy government that funds uh, projects and funds their Olympic teams at a higher and greater level per capita than any other country in the world. Okay, but the government's only wealthy because it's taxing its people. I don't know what they're doing. On, I, I, mean, I can't speak to that. I don't want to go down. Wealth. I don't want to okay. go down the rabbit hole. Okay. Anna, okay. But le- I'm just here to tell you that Norway's got cold weather. Uh huh. And they're investing like bonkers <laughs> in the Olympic. I yeah. was searching for the word. Bonkers uh-huh. for the Olympics. So they're investing in winter games. They've only got 5 million people, but they're like, you know what? That's all we need. They're kind of like Oregon State baseball. Yeah. They're like, we don't need all the good players. Yeah. We just need some of them, and <laughs> we're going to rattle around Omaha every once in a while. So Norway is making more with less because they're spending more. Mm. And it's a cold weather place. So you got kids that are growing up with snowshoes on, Yeah. and the government's going, you know what? Let's put some gold plating on those things. And that's how you get to be a, a Winter Olympics power. Well, so by that notion, like the Republic of China and Canada, mm-hmm. which have a lot of winter climate regions and, you know, interest in dominating the Olympics, they also would be not far yeah, behind. But the, the Canadians right? are focused on other things, you know, <laughs> late, late, late night, late, late night talk like? shows and. And hockey, I can't you know, wait to hear what the rest of that Canadians. Was. And then in China, it's really interesting because you and I, we, when we were in China for the Beijing Olympics, we stumbled upon these sports academies. They look like, like it, it's evident whenever you get in a country, you can tell what's important to that country just by walking around a little bit. Yeah. 
in China, it was like you'd be walking along and you'd see these gates and these doors, and it looked like it was like the gates of Disneyland or whatever, and it was their, you know, it was their Olympic training facility. Yeah, they're going around plucking yeah. like toddlers off yes. the street and be like, "Hey, you look like you have Olympic ability. Let's well, get you trained." They go now. further. They yeah. go like when Yao Ming was having the baby, they wanted the baby. Yeah, like they wanted it born in China first of all, and Yao wanted dual citizenship with the U.S. And they wanted it committed to their Olympic training program. And they take those kids, they take them, you know, if you're seven foot tall farmer and you have a baby, they're taking your baby. <laughs> and they put it into the Olympic training program like it's an orphanage. And so China is way into it. But I think China, I think the problem there is they're, they're missing out on, like, you look at the great American stories with athletes. They're not always about affluence and opportunity they're often about what they didn't have yeah. michael jordan like chasing you know the ghost of his brother you know yeah. it's it there's always kind of a chip on their shoulder type thing and i don't know how you develop a chip on a shoulder when you're taking kids from their parents at age five before they've been able to get a chip on their shoulder so what do you have then? You're just burning out a bunch of kids. I'm fascinated by – I've said fascinated like five times. Sorry. That's my word apparently of the day. By um, the club sport scene in other countries. Like mm. we know what that club sport scene is in America right now. Yeah. And how enthusiastic people are about travel teams and the thousands of dollars that some families spend every year, you know, getting their kids uh, hopefully seen at different camps and – you know, scouting opportunities and whatnot. Uh, it, it can't just be in America, right? Like, this has to be burgeoning in other countries as well. Like, I'm so curious about China. Does it have a club sports it's scene? Not, it's, what does that even look that's like? A, you know? I think it is more of an American thing because it kind of preys on the ideals of American families. Like, you know, we all say – we all believe our children are special and all kids are special, but – we all believe that, like, we want to give our kids the best opportunity. I think it is very much an American thing, like, you know, the land of opportunity. We want to provide opportunity. We don't want to – as a parent, you don't want to have, you know, your inability to give your kid access to private lessons or an expensive club becomes kind of a, you know, a thing that you would lay in bed at night. Like, not, you know, in other countries, they're laying in bed at night going, where are we going to eat? And mm -hmm. are they going to drop a bomb in our neighborhood? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like different, different problems. Like, it's first world problem, first yeah. world mentality. I bet you we lead the way when it comes to the cottage industry that is youth sports. Like, you know, I, I can't see other countries. Now, there may be soccer academies. There may be tennis. There may be golf in South Korea. Mm -hmm. Like, you could probably find some avenues there that – you know, are exploited, but I got to think that by and large, like the the way that the average American family is funneled into the club sports scene in America, I don't know if that's happening everywhere. And it's getting younger now. Like I, I'm hearing about kids that are on travel teams that are eight and nine years old. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. whoa, it's starting. What are we doing? Younger every our, year. Our kids playing roller skating. What? Why is she not on a club team? She's fine roller skating because yeah. I don't want. Get her out there. Isn't there a roller derby academy we could send we her don't, to? No. We don't need private to do that coach. Yet. Nope. Not going to do it. Private roller derby lady lesson.
I'm okay no. with them dabbling in every sport until they're about 16 or 17 it's years old. It's a very old-fashioned old mentality there, I don't Anna. care. I'm happy that way. All right, coming up, uh, I'm going to share an inspiring story, one that we could all learn from. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Cool story that developed over the weekend that you, as a listener to this show, are uniquely qualified to enjoy. Really cool story. Uh... Mark Appel, the former number one overall Major League Baseball draft pick, uh, joined the show uh, about four months ago. He was the top draft pick in 2013 out of Stanford, really good college pitcher who uh, had a 1.12 ERA in college at Stanford. He was the number one overall pick by the Houston Astros in 2013. He joined us on this show. Um, just four months ago as the baseball season was headed to uh, spring training and amid a lockout and a restructuring of minor league baseball, Mark Capel joined us. He also um, is a hell of a story. For people who know the story of Mark Capel, he was drafted by the Astros, as I mentioned, with the top pick in 2013. He got a signing bonus, $6 million signing bonus, went to single A, uh, and then promptly posted an ERA of about 9 in his first 44 innings, almost 10, 9.74 in his first 44 innings. The Astros, uh, over the subsequent couple of years, changed his grip, altered his release point. He was struggling. He wasn't just struggling to get hitters out. He was struggling to throw strikes, which he had never had problems with prior to uh, being drafted. He had uh, you know, not walked a bunch of hitters when he was at Stanford. He had good control, but he got into professional baseball, and like a lot of players, he struggled with the transition of it. And he was having trouble. Nothing came easy. There was one, uh, one game in about his third year in minor league baseball where he lasted only one inning in a start. He went to the locker room after, and he was sitting in there, and he picked up a baseball, and he threw it through a through a uh, through a particle board that was across the locker room, and and then he felt bad about it, and he went back. He went to Home Depot and he fixed the thing himself, and you know he he was just struggling, and he had a shoulder issue. He was traded by the Astros to the Philadelphia Phillies in in what was essentially a, a swap of minor league players, and uh, they gave up on him essentially, and Mark Appel held the distinction of being the third draft pick in Major League Baseball history, the third number one draft pick who had never made it to the big leagues. He quit baseball. He was 26 years old. He went home. I met Mark Appel during that hiatus from baseball. Um, I'm not going to pretend to know him very well, because I just met him in passing, shook his hand, talked to him briefly. He showed up on my doorstep here in Oregon uh, a couple of few years ago, and a friend of mine, uh, we had played played some board games, which we are prone to do, 
and a friend of mine and his wife were over the house, and we played this game called Exploding Kittens, okay? It's not what it sounds like, but it's a card game. And the friend had reached out to me and said, hey, can we borrow that game? We have a friend in town. We want to pick it up. And I said, yeah, just I'll put it on the doorstep. Well, Mark Appel is the guy who showed up to pick up the game. So I talked to him, and then later I said to my friend, I go, was that, was that the Stanford Mark Appel? And he's like, yeah. Uh, they're friends, and a friend of mine is a pastor, a youth pastor, and he got to know Mark Appel when he was just a high school kid in the Bay Area. But Mark Appel, um, three surgeries, uh, you know, a traumatic experience as a professional player, out of baseball at the age of 26, decided at the age of 30 that he was going to come back, or at least attempt to come back. So we talked to him four months ago, on this radio show, he joined us to kind of talk about what it's like to be in the minor leagues as we were talking about the struggles of minor league players and, uh, of course, minor league players that that uh, go on to uh, the big leagues. They, they look back and go, oh, yeah, those bus rides. Like, you know, they may look upon them as a rich, growing experience. But for guys who had been stuck in the minor leagues for all those years, it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't fun. They were having to work part-time jobs and whatnot. And Mark Appel came on the show and kind of talked about, you know, the other guys in minor leagues. Former number one overall draft pick was called the biggest bust in Major League Baseball history. This season, working his way back. And the Philadelphia Phillies held his rights. And because he was a guy that was drafted in 2013, you know, it, it didn't look good for Mark Appel. You know, you look around double-A and triple-A spring training, and you go, if you're 26, 27, you're kind of over the hill. 30 ancient. Appel, at age 30, starts this season in triple-A with the Phillies. And lo and behold, he's playing with the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs of the International League, Phillies triple-A club. He pitched really well. 5-0. and with a 1.61 ERA to start the season. Throwing strikes seems to be the guy of old. On Friday night, he got the call. The Philadelphia Phillies said, we're bringing you up. They had a COVID-positive test among one of their relief pitchers. They called Mark Appel to the big leagues, and he flew from Newark, New Jersey, to uh, through San Francisco to San Diego, where he met the team on Saturday afternoon. At 4 o'clock, he signed his big league contract, and Mark Appel appeared in uniform with the Philadelphia Phillies over the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, as part of their series with the San Diego Padres. Um, My friend, who uh, is close to Mark Appel, uh, I asked him, uh, you know, how long did it take you when you heard that Mark Appel was getting uh, his big league call to get a plane ticket booked to San Diego. He said it was a matter of minutes. So it was really cool to see a group of people from the state of Oregon jumping on planes to fly to San Diego so that they could be there to see this guy, the former number one pick of the Houston Astros in 2013, the guy that was called the biggest bust in Major League Baseball draft history, Mark Appel. He he got the most amazing of distinctions over the weekend. He became a big leaguer. I don't know how long he's going to stick. 
Uh, I don't know uh, if he's going to get to pitch a whole bunch of games or if he's just going to, you know, get a cup of coffee and then back to the minor leagues. But 5-0 and with a 1.61 ERA suggests that Mark Appel still, still can get it done. And I was, uh, it, it's just such a good story of resilience and perseverance. I wrote about it yesterday. You can read it at johnconzano.com. But really cool to see somebody who, you know, by all accounts is a good person who's been through some stuff just be perseverant and and just persevere and, and fight through all of the criticism, all of the doubt, all of the lack of success, three surgeries, people whispering, you know, he, you know this guy's a bust, uh, and become a big leaguer. Uh, really cool to see that guy in a big league uniform. Look him up if you want. He's with the Phillies, Mark Appel. Leave it here. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. I'm still kind of laughing at uh, Shohei Otani's participation in the Angels-Mariners fight. If you see the video of it, you know, we've seen pitchers or star players protect themselves in other uh, in, in circumstances like this over the years. You know, Madison Bumgarner, remember him running straight to the dugout? He didn't want any part uh, of a fight that, uh, that happened a few years ago. Otani came out of the dugout. He gets into the scrum a little bit, kind of on the exterior. He grabs one of the Mariners players and kind of holds him back a little bit. But the funniest part of this is the, the translator that is in, in the dugout with Otani, the translator is actually in there with him, alongside of him, seemingly there to maybe translate if he's needed, but also to kind of like act like, uh, you know, team personnel, pull somebody away, whatnot. Very graceful participation in a fight by Shohei Otani. Uh, Judah, what do you make of the fights in general that we're seeing in baseball this season? I don't love it about myself, but I, I kind of like when a fight happens because it's, you know, it's fun to watch, right? Uh, when it gets ugly, that's not great. I don't would, would I say yesterday's was ugly? Probably. I mean, you had J.B. Crawford swinging at folk. You had Jesse Winker going double bird. You know, you don't want to see that necessarily. Um, but at the same time, and the, the other thing is, like, these teams suck. <laughs> so if it was contenders, you know, like, you bring me some playoff juice like that, like you're at each other in June, all right, I'm into that. Angels and Mariners, man, I mean, we're talking about a couple teams that should be a lot better in terms of their standings than where they're at right now, so that dampens it a little bit for me. Um, I was more curious, like the umpire crew, I was reading that baseball is actually short on umpires right now, and so there wasn't an official crew chief as part of the M's Angels series this past weekend in Anaheim. They had a de facto crew chief, like one of the umpires like act was the acting crew chief, but it wasn't an umpire that normally serves as a crew chief. And that kind of played into it a little bit. Like, frankly, the stuff that happened Saturday night, you know, throwing out Trout a little bit. Uh, they weren't throwing at Trout, but, you know, they were they were buzzing his tower on his way to being walked. You know, I think a crew chief that does that job normally would probably give warnings at the end of that game as a lead-up for Sunday or give warnings before yeah. first pitch Sunday. You know, and the Angels, they had a starter ready to go for Sunday, and then 
with like an hour to go to first pitch, changed to a quote-unquote opener who was a hitman. I mean, pardon the pun, but that's exactly what he was. Like, he was an opener whose job was to throw at Julio Rodriguez and to throw at Jesse Winker. Like, that was his objective. That's what he was sent out there to do. I don't like the premeditated nature of that. To me, that's not competing, and the Angels can, you know, kiss butt for it. Do you think the translators make it enough to go out and get in the middle of that fight? <laughs> Probably. That's, that, like, the translator, if you look at the video, if you see the Otani video, uh, is out there. Now, Shohei's being called a bad teammate. People are criticizing him, saying as can a you star tell me, player. Can you tell me who is saying that? <laughs> Stephen A. Smith, others right. saying yeah, this is a bad teammate. Yeah. Um, and even people on Twitter on the on the uh, the video that I watched, some of the replies were like to a bad teammate. To be honest, I I don't see it that way because look, I get. Like, you're supposed to, in a fight situation like that, you're supposed to protect your teammates. And I think it was interesting that he went in and he kind of singled out one of the Mariners that he thought he could handle. And he grabbed the guy and kind of <laughs> gently hugged him and then pulled him away from the scrum. And then the translator, <laughs> translator, the translator was more aggressive than Otani. But I don't, like, I don't think, like, sometimes you got to wonder, especially for a player like Otani who, you know, he's Japanese. He's, he did not grow up with kind of the culture of American baseball. I kind of wonder if, like, there's part of him that's going, this isn't my fight. Like, you know, I don't have anything against these guys. Uh, or, you know, and, and by the way, who wants to get hurt? Because I think part of the thing is watch the teams that are brawling right now. I don't, I'm not seeing the best teams in baseball clearing the benches right now. I think it, we're at the, kind of the frustration brewing boiling point of the season for some of these teams that have uh, potentially uh, have had disappointing seasons, and I would include both the Angels and the Mariners in that category. Like, you know, they're playing each other 11 times and eight times in 11 days, and these are bad teams that have struggled. Uh, Scott Service talked about the brawl. Here, here's, was, here's his reaction to it. Certainly, you know, a lot of stuff uh, – uh, that probably shouldn't happen uh, in the game, you know, happened out there today, uh, emotions running high, but uh, it's pretty clear what, what was going on. Uh, you know, they, they, they switched, put an opener in there to, to throw some balls at us and, you know, uh, got out of hand from there and, and kind of a, uh, a black eye on, on you know, uh, been a very good series, competitive series, you know, whatever, uh, and it kind of got crazy there in the second inning. But uh, I've often said that people show you who they are, believe him. How much would tensions have dissipated had Wance been ejected in the first inning after throwing at Julio? I think it would have affected things quite a bit. That was clearly why he was put out there to do. It escalated to a point it, it shouldn't have. Yeah, you know, you, you hope guys come out and clear ahead and then play the game the way it's supposed to be played the next day, but clearly it wasn't. Like we keep playing baseball and play the game the right way, you know, and I don't think there's any, any point in, in getting that point you know, to that level in the game today. It, look, the umpires also said after that they, you know, they they didn't issue the warning because they did not think that, you know, this was uh, that these teams were going to continue the fight. But media who were at the stadium uh, were all over social media saying everybody at the stadium was talking about it before even the first pitch. Like, what's going to happen today? Are these teams going to fight today? And oh, by the way, these two teams. Uh, the Angels are 11 and a half games behind the Astros in the American League West. The Mariners are 12 games back. Uh, these are two teams that are struggling, sub 500. 
And I think there's a little more at play here. Manager got fired in Anaheim. I think there's a bunch of frustration that is just kind of boiling over in this situation. And uh, I think that's partly that, that, and I also think the umpires are to blame as well. But credit to uh, Otani's translator. Really uh, showed me something there. <laughs> You know, in that situation, does he go looking for the other team's translator? Exactly. That's what you know I what I mean? It's like, that's what I want to see. You know, I I need mano a mano, position on position. You know, let's figure this thing out. You said that uh, you never got in a fight with like an umpire a couple weeks ago when you were no, playing no, ball. No. Did you no. ever get close to fighting a player? Oh, we had players we didn't like, but no, never nothing like that. No but one I, threw at you. No one buzzed the. Oh, I had somebody you? throw at me, oh, but yeah? it wasn't it wasn't in a. Uh, I I have a good throw. At, guy threw at me was a minor leaguer with the Atlanta Braves, and I I should look him up to see if he ever amounted to anything. But we were having a uh, scrimmage, and a guy who was uh, going to spring training with the Braves was uh, was at our at our uh, diamond to pitch in an inter squad game. He might have been rehabbing. I don't know, but I was batting leadoff, and the guy walked me. And he was muttering as I was going down to first base, like like he was muttering about me not wanting to hit. And, you know, he's complaining that he walked me. But I was treating it like a game. Like, you know, I'm not going to swing at a ball just to make him feel better. And so I was kind of mad that he was muttering. And so I stole second. And, <laughs> and then uh, I was on second base. And he was irritated that I stole second, and I stole third. And <laughs> and then, you know, because he's just trying to pitch an inter-squad game, and I'm going around the bases <laughs> like a little leaguer. I eventually score. My next time up, he hits me right in the ribs. <laughs> and I just smiled at him, ran down to first base, and I can't remember if I – if I continued to steal bases, but the our, the first baseman was naturally our first baseman because we're playing in a scrimmage, right. and he said, "You kind of got what you deserved there." <laughs> so, That's right there you go. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. You want to read me? You can read me exclusively now at johnconzano.com. That's where you, uh, where you can read all of my columns, my musings, my mailbag. Johnconzano.com to get the uh, to get the column. Uh, go there, decide for yourself. Paid subscription, free subscription, whatever works for you. If you are getting a paid subscription, you are. Uh, helping uh, subsidize the new endeavor that I'm going on. There's going to be some travel expenses and whatnot, and I appreciate everybody who has uh, read me there. Uh, I had somebody over the weekend ask me, like, "Are you going to take time off?" Or, you know, are you? You know, I did a mailbag and I solicited questions. That was one of the questions. I thought it was a really thoughtful question. Like, are you going to take some time off? Uh, and what I told that person was that you know I've been doing this for three months, and it is incredibly rewarding to get up every morning and write what I want to write and cover the stories I want to cover and write the things that I want to write and not to have somebody telling me what to do or sending me somewhere I don't want to be. or So uh, I'm doing what I want to do, which is great. Um, I'm also 
really blown away by the response from readers. Like I think it was Saturday, Friday. It was like 38,000 people who read what I wrote on Friday or Saturday. And for somebody who started this three months ago, I was blown away by that number to see that many people reading me and engaging in the comment section and all that stuff. So uh, if you want to read me, go to johnconzano.com and uh, you won't miss a thing. And I appreciate those who are out there. I will take some time off, but I, I like I wrote to the person who asked me if I'm going to take time off. It was really important for me out of the gates to let people know I wasn't going anywhere. I told you that on this show. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to write for myself. I'm going rogue. And uh, I also thought it was important to give the people who subscribed right out of the gates value. Like, there were a lot of people who subscribed, like, the first week. There were others who subscribed the second week. And I thought, I really want to reward those people for the loyalty that they showed me or the inspiration that they helped give me. Because, you know, i got to be honest, as I saw people signing up in that first week or whatever, I've done this for a long time. I worked at different newspapers. Um, I even got called by a couple of news a agencies right after I left the newspaper, and they said, do you want to come to work for us? And I said, no, I, I, I kind of want to do my own thing for a little bit. I want to do this. I want to see what's there. I want to see how it feels. And um, it feels really good. And, look, I've only done it three months. There's a college football season ahead. But I've got big plans. I've got big plans to cover all the things that you care about and that I care about, uh, to write and tell the good stories that I think that need to be told. And I appreciate the people who are there along for the ride. I also appreciate people who have helped others find me. Um, I think it's really interesting to see how many people have bought gift subscriptions for their parents or grandparents or friends or neighbors. Uh, I had Peter Courtney, the president of the state senate here in Oregon, call me today and he said, "How do I subscribe to your thing?" And I said, "Do you, you know, try not to offend the guy. I'm not. Do you get email?" And he's like, "I'm not so old that I don't get email." I go, "Okay." It's, it's really easy. If you sign up and you subscribe, free or not, you will get what I write delivered right to your email inbox that morning. So you can read it at your leisure. If not, you can just go to johnconzano.com and you can read it at, when you want. And, you know, I'm having this conversation with a guy in his 80s, and I get off the phone and I'm going, you know, there are, there are some people out there that maybe aren't as tech-savvy parents, grandparents, whatnot, who probably could use some help. So if you have a diehard reader in your family who is saying, I miss John's column, I haven't read him, I've been writing almost every day for the last three months at johnconzano.com. And uh, if you want to get yourself a subscription, great. You want to get one as a gift for a friend, that's great too. If you want to just tell people, here's how you read John, he's writing his own thing now. JohnConzano.com. That's where you go. So I just I appreciate everybody who's been part of that. I have such big plans here for the coming weeks. I'm going to dive deep on college football. i got something on Bo Nix coming down the pipeline. Some other things I don't want to share because uh, some uh, other people might try to steal my ideas. I don't want to do that, but i got big plans is what I'm saying. And every day I'm bringing it. And I have to tell you, like, you know, every day when I post – I'm giving you 
the absolute best that I can give you. And I'm giving you, uh, you know, what I want to tell you about every day. And in that, it doesn't feel like work. And it's been really, I think, uh, invigorating. I found my joy again. And I think, you know, it's nothing personal to anybody out there. You know, I don't have any ill feelings towards anybody. But I just think sometimes when you do something for 20 years for one entity, you lose sight of why you were there in the first place. I started off as a young sports writer in this business because I wanted to tell good stories. And I wanted to tell people what was really going on. And the business has changed, and the model has changed. And there's a lot of um, incentive there to get people to, you know, to uh, read more, read more frequently. We all talk about clickbait. We talk about fake news. We talk about all those things. But I just, I needed to get back to substance, and I needed to get back to telling the stories that I wanted to tell without the noise uh, all around me. And I just feel like this is the best way to do it. And I really appreciate all of the people who have subscribed it's it's humbling like someday I'll I'll tell you the story but uh, the Cliff Notes version you know when when I first made the leap to doing my own thing um, you know Anna was probably in my ear as the number one advocate who was saying go do this go do this for yourself go do this for your readers your relationship is one-to-one -one with your readers like you don't need anybody else in that conversation and like there's part of me that was like you know I wonder if people will read you know even though I have been here for 20 years even though I have established myself even though um, you know when you go around the country and you talk about sports writers and sports columnists that you know I'm in this group of people that that is talked about and even though you know the work on the Pac-12 and whatnot or Brenda Tracy's story like you think about all that stuff and in the end I got to tell you I got glassy eyes when that first day when I launched johnconzano.com and I saw people subscribing and subscribing and subscribing my eyes got glassy because I went you know what these people get you know these readers get it these they're in it these people are in it with me so I appreciate everybody who's in it with me and along for the ride and, you know, is in who is vested in this thing. Uh, Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up, uh, top of the hour here on 750 The Game. I appreciate the listeners in Eugene on Fox Sports Eugene, powerhouse down there. Love you, Steve. Love the station. Uh, love Klamath Falls, 960 AM. Shout out to you. I need more calls from Klamath Falls this week. Okay, more calls from Klamath Falls. That rhymes. Also, uh, in Douglas County, 1490, the score. Thank you guys for being here for this show. We are back tomorrow. we got a great show tomorrow. But if you're listening in Portland on 750 The Game, Peter Sampson's going to take it on the pulse. I, I suspect, Peter, you're going to talk about Kyrie and Kevin Durant and the Blazers. Oh, without a doubt. So much going on. All right. A lot going on. And how about Kyrie? Big tease. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Come on. Give me a break. Yeah, seriously. All right. Uh, we'll catch you later. Grab the podcast if you want to hear more of this and catch me at johnconzano.com in the morning.